Welcome to Overcoming Working Mum Burnout, Mindset and Managerial Solutions to Unrealistic Expectations and Gender Inequality at Home and Work. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, a working mum, behaviour scientist and burnout survivor. I talk with burnout researchers, HR experts and life coaches about the real reasons working mums burn out. We identify behavior change strategies that support and empower working mums to continue to grow and to advocate for change at home, work and in society at large. When mums thrive at work and at home, the world benefits. This week I am learning about setting boundaries and standing up for your values with Australian researcher Dr. Hannah Badland. My name is Hannah Badland. I have two children, one who is five years old next week and one who's eight months old today. I'm a professor at RMIT University and I'm the deputy director of the Centre for Urban Research, which has about 65 research intensive academics. Great. Thanks so much. Hannah, you just went back to work from maternity leave. Yes, I did. (laughs) Thank you so much for for speaking with us at this time. How was that? How did you manage it? And for example, are there any processes that your university has to make sure that the leave is well planned, that the return is comfortable? I know a lot of people are returning to work from COVID and this idea that we don't necessarily talk about how to re-enter seems relevant for COVID, but also for mums returning from maternity leave. Yeah. So my situation was quite unusual that I ended up, our second child wasn't expected, and I ended up finding out I was pregnant the day before we all left the office in the first lockdown of COVID in Australia. We had a significant lockdown in Melbourne. And once that um, finished in the end of October, my youngest child was born two days later. So it was a really weird experience in terms of being pregnant and no one necessarily knowing. So I told all the people who needed to know early on, but just that casual day-to-day encounter of people, you obviously didn't have because everything removed to remote teleconferences and whatnot. But what happened is that not that many people knew. So if you didn't need to know, there wasn't really that forum for a conversation because the meetings were also time-bounded and it's not necessarily appropriate to just announce that you're about to have a baby. So it was quite weird. And then all of a sudden I was going on maternity leave and people were quite surprised. So that was um, the lead up to it but the way my role is that I've got I work four days a week so prior to going on maternity leave I was four days a week two days are spent doing a research fellowship that I have and the other two days are doing the deputy director role when I went on maternity leave the arrangement was that there'll be someone backfilling the deputy director role which um, against that two days a week and then the research just sort of falls into the ether as it typically does I suspect for a lot a lot of research so I did work quite a lot throughout my maternity leave this time there were a lot of grant opportunities coming up some of them in response to COVID so there was a lot of dynamicism that was required in terms of helping I guess government responses to the COVID outbreak and um, so again you have to be really agile and be on top of things so 
I did on average probably work between two and three hours a day when my youngest was sleeping. But towards the end, I pulled right back and actually had a break because I think it's quite important checking when you're coming back. Picking up your question about the policies in place, RMIT has quite flexible arrangements. Uh, you do, by law, have one-year maternity or parental leave in Australia, but you can negotiate two years if you wish. Um, and my understanding is it's not frowned upon if you were to ask for that. And within Australia, again, the legislation is, I think it's either 14 or 18 weeks paid parental leave at minimum wage that the government provides. Can't remember which one it is, but RMIT actually is a very generous policy where you get up to six months paid leave, full salary, plus a three month return to work bonus if you return on your agreed upon date. So there are a lot of financial incentives, which that it is that is quite unique to the Australian environment, but probably not so unusual within a university environment, which is great because that allows people just a bit of flexibility. And I guess not that pressure that may come through if you've only got minimum wage salary coming through for the first few weeks. So then in terms of the structures around coming back to work, they do offer, RMIT I think it's actually really inclusive and it really recognises and supports diversity. So there's a lot of opportunities to return back to part-time work. There's lots of support for non-traditional families, which is really great. So they do offer, in terms of systems to support you back to work, these, I think they're called keep in touch days, and you're allowed up to 10 while you're on your parental leave break. And they're paid days to come to, let's say, workshops or planning days, or you need to meet your manager. So you feel like, I guess you've got... Um, a handle on what's going on and I think these are great initiatives but importantly which I think is also very important is that you're not expected to do them so they do respect that you are on leave and it's your discretion if you'd like to participate in them and if you don't that's fine that there's no one um, making you do them so that's good and then RMIT is also now trialing a new program which I was part of the working group and it's called Reignite and it's to support people who have come back from significant caring responsibilities back into into research career so it is aimed at academics who are research intensive and it provides there's various levels of support and we're rolling it out now but it ranges from one-to-one coaching so how to actually I guess plan your year how to be strategic etc and then it moves right through to it's between 20 and 50 thousand dollars um still to be decided is my understanding but for actual seed funding to support research assistance to continue your work and help bring you back up to full productivity after being on a break for a while so my understanding is that it is open to everyone who's had careers responsibility but typically it's women who tend to apply for it and use it so I think that's a really great way to support women at least researchers back into the workforce in a way that it supports what they need because it could just be someone to help give some advice on how to be a bit more streamlined during their day or how to plan better or whatever it is or it might actually be a bit more physical resources to help with writing papers or submitting papers or whatever it might be yeah so that's a really interesting one that's just been rolled out now so I think it will be in its pilot over the next year or so That's fantastic. These are all such amazing examples that I've not heard of and that seem to to really make sense. And that's really what I'm looking for with these uh, 
conversations is to hear about other examples. So I'm so glad that we have the examples here from Australia as an alternative. And and it sounds like you've been involved in some of these committees and and policymaking. What drew you to that? Yeah, so I've got a, a really big interest in equity and I've got a really big interest and a huge belief in women being able to succeed. And you see it so many times where women, particularly around the period of child rearing they just fall off like they drop off a cliff pretty much and in terms of their career progression it just stalls when you look at time and time again internationally nationally locally what is a whole bunch of men and senior jobs and a whole whole bunch of women remaining in the levels b and c possibly d which is i guess from a research fellow through to senior research fellow maybe associate professor and it's just so systemic and it's such a problem and anything i can do to help create a path that's not necessarily the path that every single guy's gone on the one that actually values women values their contribution to caring as well their professional lives and also recognizing that women who are actually raising children or caring for people or whatever it might be they actually bring their own set of really strong values but also a much I think are actually much better in terms of working in a team they bring an empathy they understand diversity they have a set of soft skills which is typically undervalued but really important negotiation empowering people bringing together diverse people and getting them to function as a team which are skills that in particular when you're raising your family you draw on those every single day to get out the door like that's what you need to do and I actually think I'm a much better researcher and much better leader and much better in a team environment after having children yeah it sets your perspective it it develops all those other skills that aren't necessarily measurable on like a metric based system like number of publications or research money or whatever but in terms of actually being successful and people wanting to collaborate with you bringing a team and building a team around you and actually being a really effective leader I think it's fantastic it's really important and just to your question of you know some of the committees uh, I sit on the women's research network steering committee also within the university there's about 12 of us the role of that is to basically advocate for women researchers uh, within the university and sometimes outside it but we did quite a significant piece of work around COVID-19 statement of impact on women researchers and we that ended up being presented to the executive but just to sort of talk about what some of those issues are specifically for women it it may affect other people as well but in terms of child caring homeschooling and just something here and now so that it is a pandemic the here and now impact but also how that alters the trajectory of people's careers and disproportionately there was again a lot of evidence coming out but disproportionately it was falling to women who were doing most of the homeschooling and then having to juggle their careers outside of um, the school hours and therefore they were missing out on research meetings they were missing out on decision making opportunities they lost their visibility we really wanted to capture that and 
let the executive know that, in our perspective at least, once COVID stops, the impacts don't stop. And when we're looking at women's careers, that typically the trajectory could even flatten entirely. How we can actually put systems in place that are fair and recognise that burden. So when you said you were measuring that, did you guys develop surveys to to measure that amongst the women? And then what are some of your policy recommendations going forward? Yeah, so we did. We we did a survey amongst the membership asking them, you know, what are the implications? Um, what support do you need moving forward? And what we found was promotions were a big one. So typically in Australian promotions, it looks at your last three to five years in terms of your productivity and output. So that's what the assessment's made on. So we made some suggestions that that in terms of productivity, maybe an option to somehow wait the last year, the previous year. And there is also, it's called ARTO, which is activated relative to opportunity. And that is an opportunity where you can actually talk about career breaks you've had, which often is obviously child caring and, and things. And then you can actually estimate the magnitude that's had on your career. But again, that's a bit of a skill. And, and interestingly, I was talking, to, so this is a bit tangential, but I was talking to someone the other day about that and that actually can have a slight disadvantage too and this is a point that we raised with the executive that if you're quite junior in your career where you do experience a significant career impact or career break your metrics are actually fairly low in terms of what that impact is and therefore the legacy of the timing um, of that career break lasts with you and probably has a deeper effect whereas for example I had um, my first child fairly late, um, 36. And by that time, I'd had my PhD finished for 10 years. So I was already fairly senior in terms of my research outputs. So the so the cost, for want of a better word, of having children later was actually higher. And it, and it actually puts me in more of a favorable position when I quantify my caring responsibilities. So I think it's something that we, we just needed to be aware of, that we weren't further biasing junior people by not giving them as, I guess, like not costing their contribution as highly as what you do if you um, have children later in life. Interesting. Yeah, that's great that you're raising all those issues. And obviously in your own research, you work in policy. So do you feel like you've taken some of the skills that you've learned along the way and applying them to this topic? Yeah, I think so, to a point. And one thing that I think, like bringing it all together, what it has made me do over the last five years, I think when I've been faced with the challenge of raising a family and and trying to maintain a career, is that um, applying an equity lens over policies. So when something comes out, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Let's say just that promotions criteria have been like the last three years or five years. Like I immediately now think about how that would disadvantage some groups over other groups or how privilege other groups some groups over others and that's something that I probably wasn't thinking about so much maybe 10 years ago because I hadn't really been faced with it and now that I have it's that lived experience has really shaped my perspectives and understanding how you can advocate for others 
Interesting. I, I think that's great. And it's really interesting hearing you speak a little bit about having your kids older. I think we're actually on, on exactly the same trajectory. I had my son at 36 and then uh, 41 was my daughter. <laughs> so one thing I found hard was like you, I, I had my PhD for a while, but I was going through the promotion process on the professor track taking on leadership positions in academia, doing larger grants than I'd ever done before. And my kids were still young, whereas I felt like the other professors who were leaders and full professors and at the peak of their career had their kids so much younger. So I found that really hard to manage because I wanted to be still growing and accelerating and I didn't have time. My family focus. They were at that age. They weren't yet teenagers that weren't interested in me. They really, they need a lot of time at that age. So can you speak to that yet? Or have you come across that? And Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can. So I actually got promoted to professor while I was on parental leave this round. So it came through in December last year. So I knew that I had to write it last year before I went on leave because I thought it would be just really hard returning back from parental leave with a really small child one who's about to set off to school and then picking up all my duties and responsibilities so I did go early but I made I made sure that I spent probably about two years finding the chinks in the armor and then really working so internal leadership was really where I felt like I needed to strengthen myself because I'd recently moved over to RMIT from another university and so my external leadership was fine my research was fine but I needed to build some internal leadership so I took on quite a few internal strategic roles to strengthen that in terms of how you actually deal with the leadership yeah you're right it's super busy but I still to this day don't have work emails on my phone. I very rarely work at nights or in weekends. I reckon maybe once every three weeks I do a bit of work at night and I don't tend to work weekends. It's just too challenging in terms of what you need to balance. So you set those boundaries, which is great. Yep, and I make it clear the day that I don't work. So I work four days a week. Outlook response that comes back to the people. I don't work today. I'll get back to you when I'm back working. And I do tend to check maybe once or twice, particularly if I know that there's something time critical coming through, which yeah, that still happens. But I'll only do it twice a day and for normally a very short period of time. So I'm very firm on that. And I and part of me, well, in fact, actually all of me, I think it's really important to actually show that there's other ways of doing things because academia is so, people just get themselves worked up in these knots and they wear it like a badge of honor that I worked all weekend and they and other people endorse that oh good on you no that's not good on you either there's way too much work or you're inefficient and or maybe it's a combination of both I don't know but it's not something that we should be saying that's a good thing and I think it's a really big problem and so when I with my, my team and my students and other people who I work with or my collaborators I make it really clear that no, I'm not going to be turning something around working till midnight, three nights in a row. And most of the time when that happens is because someone's been unorganized and dropped something off to you last minute. And then particularly women, I find that they often then take on board that person's problem rather than going, well, no, I'm sorry, I needed X amount of time 
I actually now can't look at it till whenever it might be. And that's often what I do. I'm a big believer in mentoring and helping people. And I, and I really like doing that. But if I'm, let's say, helping someone with their promotions application or structure a CV or look through a grant, whatever it is, I'll say to them, look, I can look at it on Friday between this time. If you can get it to me beforehand, that's great. Otherwise, the next time I can look at it will be Thursday the following week. So they're really clear on what the options are and I'll block it out in the diary and I will deliver it as much as I can when I agree to. But it stops that sort of being taken by granted and that your time doesn't matter because your time does matter. It matters just as much as anyone else's. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. You've really set boundaries around that. And, and again, that's interesting to, to hear you say that and even think about your four-day week, because I remember doing this 360 review and lots of my staff said they really appreciated how um, I balanced work and family. And that's basically what I role modeled to them, but I didn't do it. Once I got my kids to bed, I was there working till God knows what time I was working weekends. So I always would say, yes, we're having vacation. And yes, I'm going home now because my kids are important to me, but I wasn't really honest about the fact that I was making up for it in my sleep time. And, And so then I realized my goodness, I've shot myself in the foot here because nobody knows what I'm going through. I'm exhausted. I'm burning myself out and I have hidden it. I'm setting them a good example because I had lots of mentees and mums in my group, but I realized I was cheating myself and that was really rotten. Yeah. And, and I do think like one thing, again, this is like just my personal philosophy, but academia is a game. You are so disposable that once you run out of money, you're gone pretty much, or you move into teaching and research or into some other type of role. But it's very competitive to get funding in Australia, which I'm sure is the same pretty much everywhere else. But you're talking on some schemes, 10, 15% success rate. So everyone's bending over backwards to, to do these just weird models where you put in months and months of intellectual input like you like you wake up in the middle of the night for a 10% success or 15% like it's just a game and I always approach it like that I've only moved into this is my first role that I've ever it turns into an ongoing appointment and this is the first time I've ever had that so I merely lived on you know one two three year contract throughout my career But keeping that perspective, I think, is really important because it does make you check yourself and not take yourself so seriously because otherwise I think you just end up going down this rabbit hole. And another thing as well is that my husband, he's not an academic at all. He's totally in another sector. And it means that it's quite balanced. So we don't really, we don't even really know what each other do. So we don't come at home and really talk about work. Like you might talk about like a broad thing, like I was really frustrated or this worked really well, or guess what I got or whatever. But it's all in, it's more about the person that you're talking about and you're supporting the person and listening to the person rather than competing with them on a research program or getting a paper or metrics or something. So we don't really talk about work at all. And I think it's quite nice in terms of being able to step out. But then when I am at work, I'm really focused and I don't really take lunch breaks. So that's one thing that I I keep saying every year that I'm going to do take lunch break. I end up not. But I'm okay with that if it means that I can protect my nights 
and my weekends. To me, that's more important. And you're being a role model to then your female mentees. And maybe you didn't have those role models yourself. I had lots of mentees. And often the things that they came to me with were problems of inequality not being taken seriously by their male colleagues or being asked, well, what are you going to do if you have a second child? And of course, then their reaction was, I'll work harder. And it was just so devastating or that they were missing out on opportunities because they couldn't travel to conferences. One of the things I would say to my, my mentees was, we may get to the table later, but when we get there, we will bring so much more. And I think when I burned out and left, I lost my belief in that as well. And I think that is part of burnout is that you have this cynicism for what is possible. So tell me a little bit about that in terms of what are the issues that maybe your female mentees are dealing with and how do you manage them? Because I think I could have done a better job of knowing what to do, like all the reading I'm doing now, I'm like, oh, I could have given them this statistic saying, yes, you shouldn't be getting asked this question or here's how to handle it. I think um, you've actually touched on a much bigger issue around the systems. And I think, so RMIT, I'm just going to return back to where I'm working at the moment. RMIT has a huge focus on diversity and inclusion. So it keeps winning national employee awards as being a place that really values all different types of people. It really welcomes them to the workplace. So if you were openly saying comments like that, at least, and I'm talking from social sciences, but my understanding is that it does happen in STEM a lot more, you would be not hauled over the coals, but it would be called out as inappropriate behaviour. Whereas some organisations, no one that's an eyelid that someone would say, yeah, what are you going to do now that you've got your second baby or whatever it might be? But I think how you actually manage it in terms of a seat at the table, I think we're at a bit of a crossroads with women. A lot of the senior women, not all, but a lot of the senior women in academia have got there by playing, I call it the man's game, but it's often not having children, working very long hours and following the pathway that a guy follows because like likes like that's what I always say and like supports like so like advocates like until you actually get a system where diversity is actively encouraged and recognized it's going to be quite hard to shape that because the senior people who may still be in that mindset of having that echo chamber and supporting themselves (laughs) supporting people who have the same views as them it would be very hard to get in otherwise. Like someone who comes in with maybe you know, three or four children, might have a disability, might be of a different ethnicity, like who knows, whatever it is, it can make them feel quite uncomfortable. So if you're in a, working in an organisation that actively values diversity, it measures on it. If it's not diverse, it gets called, it gets called to account. What does the promotions criteria? Who is getting promoted? Are they men? Are they women? Are they indigenous people? Are they people with disabilities? If they're not these people, why aren't they these people? What are we doing? How are our systems failing? So you need to be having that continual check back to understand. And if it's not, if it's not happening, how can they be held to account? What are the values that are going on? And I think to put it back on the woman to change the system I think is that's a really big weight to have on their shoulders so and I also think as well if you want to change the system 
you've actually already got to be really good at what you do, <laughs> which is, so, it's, a, it's, this, it's this huge burden for women. They need to have credibility as researchers. They need to have the right soft skill sets to be able to advocate smartly. And then they also need to be able to really know what levers to push to respond to that diversity. And that's huge. Like you're coming back to work. All you want to do is just keep your head above water. At this stage, that's what I think the change agents look like. But hopefully once they get in place, they actually create these pathways for other people with diverse circumstances to actually flourish and really succeed. And when I think of my mentors, I've had some absolutely fantastic mentors throughout the well, throughout my whole career, and they've been a mixture of men and women. But the, I was reflecting on this, Jacqueline, before we um, spoke. And what they have all had, and I guess that's why I've been drawn to them, is actually they really value diversity and they bring quite a rich life experience to how they've got to where they are. They're all excellent researchers as well. So coming back to my point of you need to be everything. It's not all about work. It is actually the human, the real they are not perfect, but they try to work through solutions. And that's why they're quite good because you can, you're dealing with a challenge, like how you're going to manage whatever it is. And they can actually draw on a really human experience and knowledge base to share with you rather than that, just don't worry about it. Don't care about the person, just go and deliver this, which is in my mind, the old way of thinking. Right. That's great. That's great. And I think that's trying to think about that. I I remember hearing a podcast saying, we just need compassionate managers. And I'm always triggered by that word just because it reminds me of Nike saying, just be physically active. And us as physical activity researchers know how hard it is for people to be active. I was like, what does that even mean? What is it to be a compassionate manager but I think it's more than that though in terms of working in organizations the actual organizational value of diversity and I think that's really critical because you end up with if you've got a diverse workforce you end up with much better outcomes on everything like there's so much evidence out there now about valuing diversity and I ended up actually having this argument with this man on a plane dare I say it he was an older guy I was just terrible and he'd just come back from some board meeting he was old white old school and anyway we got talking and I was talking about social enterprises and how I think that a great way forward and that's amazing what people are doing and then he ended up talking about women and how we run off we run off with his hands so us running off to have babies and then we expect that we can return to the workforce and that just got me going and so that was like a red flag to a bull and then I started talking about diversity I was talking about so when in his positions on boards doesn't he think diversity is important and then at the end he was getting really angry as I probably was too but then at the end he actually can see I finally got it out of him that diverse diversity makes for better working outcomes he didn't want to say it but he ended up saying it and the more we actually, I think, even take it away, because again, if we talk about the managers, we're still putting it back on the person. And and in that, depending on who your manager is, you might have the most fabulous manager who offers you all these opportunities, but then equally, you might get a manager who doesn't value you and your contribution at all, and, and then you're shut down. So I think it needs to get moved into a system where these are the, the organizational values for these reasons and everyone is expected to apply them 
whether or not you're a manager, you're a junior member of staff, whatever it is. And, and therefore, it takes away the onus on whether or not you hit the jackpot. And then it's not that person constantly advocating for, actually, I am allowed to do professional development or I am allowed to do, have X percent of my time to join a committee or whatever it is. It's There's a framework there and you know what everyone's entitled to and it's a lot more fair. And, and that's so interesting because I know we had a little exchange beforehand in terms of, I remember doing this um, class for students and thinking about our ecological models that we work in, where we've got the, our individuals, we've got our families, we've got our institutions, our communities, our policies, etc. And I remember trying to think about how do I change those things? And then suddenly I had this sort of aha moment as I was preparing my lecture saying all those things are people within these places, within these positions. So we just have to use the behavior change that we understand for people to apply that, whether it's just a person that's a policymaker or is a person that's a manager, we can still change their behavior through our the behavior change skills that we know work. So when I think about systems, I think they're only as good as the people who are enforcing them, making the decisions to change them. But I can also see in what you're saying is once you do have a framework and a value system, then it does take out the individual decision making. If it's applied and integrated, or as you say, metrics, it valued, it's measured. And I think that's what we have to understand. The word value means that you evaluate something. If it's important, right, you measure it. If anyone's just likely to speak up in career progression, it's typically women. Like men are so much better off at, at better at negotiating things. It's getting better, but typically. And so women are probably less likely to ask anyway and then if it's not being offered and the manager just and it might be that that it's unintentional it's just that someone hasn't asked so I haven't offered and just understanding that like, like how they work together but this is all slightly utopian too because we've had huge protests at the start of this year around the way women are treated a lot of it was based around sexual harassment went a lot deeper as well just in terms of how you know women are being paid less they're not in as many senior positions but sexually harassed at workplaces it's not a safe place for them and they were huge across Australia and I don't really feel like that much has changed but when you around the protest it was quite a conversation and just that pretty much every single woman was like yep I've got these experiences that not one single woman who I know has not been either sexually harassed, they felt that they've been looked over with a man being promoted above them, the opportunities haven't been equal, you get the snide comments, you know, the, the one that you used before Jacqueline around, oh, so you're going to have another baby. What man says that to another man? It just doesn't happen. And so I think we do have a long way to go in terms of that. what I was talking about before is I think that's the way forward. And I think RMIT, for example, is doing a good job in being very clear about what the values are and starting to get metrics and, and systems in place. But it's only fairly recent that's been happening. But there still is a lot of people who aren't actually quite on board with it yet. And we've got a lot of really angry women out there. 
I, I love all the examples that, that you've talked about because they really resonate with what we are trying to say here in the US. And I feel like you're, you're living it. So what would be something you would recommend women do today? Yes, boundary setting and being okay with it. So even if I, I understand a lot of people will be working as you, as you were doing, Jacqueline, working you know, every night, every weekend, it might freak them out too much to have like maybe no night work or no weekend work, but but say, okay, Tuesdays and Thursdays or I know one day a weekend or whatever you choose, like whoever chooses based on how they feel comfortable, but go, I am not going to work. I'm not going to check my emails. And just do it and verbalize it, tell people, make it really clear that is what I'm doing with a view that's not your end point, with a view that you're going to slowly transition into having some really firm boundaries. And it's quite liberating. My hours, I finish work a little bit earlier so I can pick the kids up. And everyone knows my hours. So if they make meetings that go over, I just leave. And I I never apologize because everyone's known my hours and there's been a choice made to make a meeting at that time for whatever reason and that's it but I've got commitments too so I leave I'll let them know that I'll be leaving yeah it's common courtesy but I will never apologize for having to go find a boundary that you're comfortable with but it's a bit of a stretch like you do want it to be a bit of a stretch target and just give it a give it a shot see what happens see if the world implodes probably won't (laughs) you probably won't get any less research papers or any less research money or whatever it is and if anything you might even end up being a little more balanced and a little bit more clearer in your thoughts and then if we think of like a, a a system solution or like a managerial solution so that one is like a more personal mindset one what might be one that you would suggest for somebody working in a committee to put out there or is the one that you have that you would like to see happen more at the systems level? So let's say if you are contributing to a committee um, on whatever it is, just even an assessment in the committee that are you actually representing the views of the cohort? Yeah, Is it diverse? If it's not diverse, how can we bring whoever it is in that needs to be there. And I think that's always a really important starting point because if you are, if the committee's in a position where it's helping to shape policy, you need to have that diversity because otherwise there's going to be unintended consequences where people may be privileged over others. So that's a really nice, easy way to, and quite a gentle ease in, in terms of thinking about changing the system. And another thing would be um, being actually aware about what your organisational values are and then it's something to talk about so you talk about with your staff you talk about it at meetings you make it clear that this is actually whatever it might be is really important how do we make sure that comes through in conversations that staff feel valued in that way and again that that sort of removes it a little bit more from the person and it moves a little bit more upstream to Here's what the organization can offer you to support whatever thing it is. So, for example, the reignite of women returning to work. So here's a, here's a whole system that you can now access because this is aligned with the values of diversity and research excellence. So it'd be knowing what's available as well within the organization and then how that matches up to, I guess, individual people. So then they know that they can advocate for that if let's say the manager's not aware again yes yeah making sure everyone does know about it yep 
Yep. That's great, Hannah. This has been so helpful. I just knew that in asking you this, <laughs> you are you're somebody that's not afraid to have an argument on a plane. <laughs> that about sums you up. We had an, an argument was before we even took off. So we had the whole plane ride sitting next to each other. It was bad. It was really bad. But that made me think again, actually, one piece that was a part of uh, my reason for inviting you, and it definitely goes to travel, which is you have lived and worked in many different places. I I think some of the things for me coming to the US, because I had moved here from Germany as well, and so that was a very socialist country, and just realizing, I felt like it was the first time in my life I actually had to face people making disparaging comments about women. I I didn't feel like I'd come across them before. Somebody said to me, oh, you're in the kitchen where you should be. And I was so shocked. And it was, my goodness, I've never had to face these types of comments before. I think I was unprepared in some ways. I really blame myself for not knowing some of the statistics around the the things that are happening to women in the workplace, because I, I just didn't even know about them till then I was experiencing them or rather my my students and mentees were experiencing them because I, I hadn't come across them before so I, I think that's definitely one thing I, I wish I had feel like I, I wish I could have been more prepared so that's definitely one of my missions now is to make sure the information's out there but for sure organizations like lean in they have these amazing fight gender bias cards and there's all these examples and I was like oh my goodness I wish I'd had these things in my hand because I would have recognized the problem and then they have a solution yeah and it's everywhere like it's so pervasive like once you do start calling it out or people start calling it out that's when you start understanding that yeah it's absolutely everywhere and even those comments that you should be in the kitchen or whatever it is, I'm always like a deer in headlights when someone says something like that because I'm so taken back. But then it's it's actually a really aggressive and undermining comment. And then how do you come back from that? Because often it's made in front of a lot of people and they think they're being funny, but it's not funny. And then it puts you in a really awkward situation of how you actually manage it to say that's not okay. Is it that you call someone to account right in front of them or do you go back and have a a one-on-one conversation about it and then again it still comes back to you and how you manage it and it's a really tricky thing and I don't think people are necessarily taught the skills around around that and and all of a sudden you probably you know eight out of ten times and I don't know that that's a statistic totally made up but people just let it slide because it's too uncomfortable to have that confrontation and and people don't know how to address it, despite the fact it's entirely inappropriate. But if you had that broader, I guess, agreement in your organisation where that stuff just isn't tolerated. And I think you've got a really good point there about teaching people how to be upstanders, because that's really the core. I've been um, re-listening to Kim Scott's book, which is called Just Work, and it's all about moving into being upstanders and so she gives lots of reasons for why but I think that's a really good point is how do we do it she provides examples of how you could but I do agree those are the skills we need there's a great organization called Hollaback who do training in bystander interventions in the workplace those are the skills to be able to be thinking about giving our kids which is how do you stand up? And I remember that actually, this reminds me totally 
I'll have to look back this book as well. I think it, the book was called Wingman, but basically when there was a series of the rape cases in the US were really high. And so there was this researcher on the radio saying, asking our boys to stand up to their friend to prevent them doing something to a girl when they're drunk is too late. That's such a difficult situation to intervene in if you haven't taught them along the way and given them the chance to practice standing up to their friends and giving them these skills to say, here's how you do it. So that when the the really hard situation comes, they don't fail because it's part of what they already learned to do. So I think that has, I think that's something we could really think about is how do we train everyone to be upstanders, not bystanders? Yeah, yeah. And there's some stuff going on at the moment around domestic violence in Australia. And we've got some really high rates and a lot of women are being killed. And they shifted now for men to actually call men out. And it's great because previously a lot of it was around the women getting out, getting somewhere safe and resetting themselves. But it's not the women who are the problem. It's the men who are beating them. And guy, and it's now this more recognition that it's it's happening with this weird power dynamic is being led by guys. It needs to be moderated by guys as well. And just to say, look, mate, this is actually not the way you behave. And so there's, oh, there was an advertisement on TV about it. And it was a guy just talking to his partner on the phone, but really awfully. And then the other guys actually intervene and go, yeah, that's not how you speak to women. And, and it's, it does change it. And it means a bit of a conversation for men who haven't really had to think about it before. And because it, it just shouldn't be, I feel like sometimes when we're trying to support women, it can sometimes fall into this, like, well, they've got to do it themselves, but we can't do it unless we have the support of everyone to do it. So yeah, that, that whole upstand and, and it's not someone by themselves going, I really didn't like it when you spoke to me like that everyone coming around and going, that's just not an appropriate way to speak to anyone. Like that whole is a collective shift. Yeah. And I, I think that's what's so important in our social norms. And that's where these advertising campaigns, those are things that we know from the research, they can affect social norms. They don't necessarily change other behaviors, but they certainly can affect social norms. And that's, yeah, that's great. That's great. This has just been such a, a, a fascinating conversation, Hannah. I'm so grateful for your time and I'm glad you're back at, at work and that you have, that you're setting these boundaries and you're preserving yourself because, yeah, I, I, I that's really what I want is other women not to burn out. It, it hasn't been a fun experience. It, it, it It's taken away so much of my confidence in my life and I don't, really want other people to have to go through that because I'm still battling it and so to hear you be so strong in your boundaries it's really inspirational and I'm going to work on that one I'm going to use that as our <laughs> behavior change example that I'll publish with the podcast too yeah booking a dinner with someone you're not going to do work because you'll be having a nice dinner instead Thank you so much, Jacqueline, as well. It's been absolutely such a pleasure to catch up with you and to do this. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate the invitation.
Thank you so much for listening today. You can find helpful resources from each guest and key takeaways on the podcast website at www.drjacquelinecurr.com slash podcast. You can download additional resources on the website, including this week's behavior change guide, which focuses on setting boundaries around your work hours. I would love to hear your burnout story, which key takeaways helped you, ideas for topics you want me to cover, or guests to interview. Please complete the feedback form on the website, again, drjacquelinecurr.com slash podcast, or comment in the episode post in LinkedIn under Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. I want to learn more about meeting your needs. If you are enjoying these episodes, please rate, review, and subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you listen. Thank you. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter.